morning, Christ Community Church. This is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the Sunday that begins the celebration of Easter week for us. If you've ever wondered why it's called Palm Sunday, the answer lies right in the text that we're going to read this morning, right in John chapter 12, verse 13. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna. You know, all four Gospels record this event that we call the triumphant entry. The question is, why do we call it the triumphant entry? I mean, after all, if you know the story, it, how triumphant could it be when our protagonist, Jesus, is crucified a few days after the event? For that matter, why do we call Good Friday good when after the event, Jesus gets betrayed just a few hours later? That doesn't sound very triumphant, and it doesn't sound very good, does it? Seems to me when we're thinking about these things, there's possibly only two options to resolve that. Option number one is that Christians are completely out of touch with reality, living in a constant state of denial or burying their heads in the sand. And if you are a Christian long enough, you'll hear at least one of those accusations. That's option number one. Option number two could be that Christianity has a fundamentally unique way of looking at things that seem one way on the surface, but are in fact something altogether different. If we're calling triumphant and good something that leads to crucifixion, then Christianity is either absolute insanity, and Karl Marx is right that religion is nothing more than an opium for the masses, or we completely don't understand what we think we understand about what's going on in the world around us. Now, those two options represent two completely different perspectives, don't they? In our passage this morning, John chapter 12, has two very different perspectives that result in two radically different conclusions. There's the perspective of those who were inclined to believe Jesus and His followers, and then there's a the perspective of those who were not inclined to believe in Jesus. They were the people who were against Jesus. And as we'll see this morning, perspective can make all the difference in whether or not you understand the Christian faith. And understanding the Christian faith can make all the difference in whether or not you know how to respond to the events and circumstances of our life. The key to having the right perspective in understanding the Christian faith is to have the right perspective about who Jesus is. Not who we want Him to be, not who we would like Him to be, not even who we think He is, but who Jesus is as revealed in Scriptures. That's the important thing we're talking about this morning. So before we begin, before we jump into John chapter 12, let me ask this question to you. If I were to ask you, um, where did you get your perspective about Jesus? Would you be able to open up a Bible and point to places in the Bible that have shaped your perspectives about Jesus and why you believe Him, or conversely, why you don't believe in Jesus? Could you go to the Bible and say, this is why I think Jesus is who He is, or this is why I disagree? Or what, would what I get from you be kind of a combination of stories you've heard other people tell you about Jesus? Maybe Sunday school lessons you learned as a kid, maybe movies you watched growing up, maybe even some desires you have about who you wish Jesus would be. If I were to ask you, what has shaped your perspective about who Jesus is, which would I get? Because perspective matters. Perspective can change the trajectory of the actions we take in our lives. 
You know, I heard this story about a, a very well-known shoe manufacturer. They wanted to break into the African market. And so to start, they started off in the Congo. And so they set two, sent two sales reps to determine whether or not this market had viability. One of the sales reps kind of called back to the main office and said, look, this territory is a bust. There's no market here. No one wears shoes. The other sales rep called back to the office and said, this territory's amazing. There's no limit to the market potential. Everyone's barefooted. So perspective can make all the difference in the actions you take. So this morning, we're going to look at two very different perspectives on the same event we see in John chapter 12. If you have a Bible open, go to John chapter 12, and we're going to pick it up in verse 12 and read through verse 16. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a, donkey, a young donkey and sat on it, just as it, is, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting, sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and it had been done to him. So first of all, let's look at the perspective of those who were inclined to believe Jesus was who he said he was. Let's look at the perspective of those that found Jesus to be their sure bet. He was the thing. Now, Palm Sunday, what's interesting about uh, this, these events surrounding Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, is that this event is found in all four of the gospel writers. If you were here during our study of Mark's gospel, we talked about how the various gospels chose deliberately certain events or teachings of Jesus' life, and that not all of them shared the same accounting of Jesus' life. And the reason being is all four of them together were trying to create a complementary account of the life of Jesus. So things that maybe Mark emphasized, Luke wouldn't. Things that Luke didn't emphasize, John would. So it's really interesting that all four of them include this same passage of the triumphant entry. The reason probably is, is because this is probably one of the most clearest declarations of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for, the King to come to deliver the people of God. The salvation of Israel had finally arrived, and He was it. Now, not only did the people understand these events that way, but it's clear that all four gospel writers understood the event that way, particularly because they quote Zechariah 9 and Isaiah 62. You see that right there in that, that phrase in verse 15 of John 12, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, you're familiar with Zechariah 9. This was a prophecy we looked at in our, our study of the minor prophets that was pointing forward that one day the Messiah would come to Jerusalem, and of all ways that he would enter, it wouldn't be on a, a triumphant horse and chariot and, and a big, all this fanfare of military power. He'd come in on a donkey. In Isaiah, in Isaiah 62, where, where John's kind of combined these two verses, actually all Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do that, it's, it's a pivot point in the prophet Isaiah when he's talking about God's salvation coming to the world. And so here we have it happening. Now, to the degree that the people at the time knew exactly, we're thinking of Zechariah 9 and Isaiah 62, we don't know. We can assume some of them did. 
but clearly there was an excitement anticipation for Jesus coming into Jerusalem that Sunday afternoon. As a matter of fact, let's look at it in the four Gospels. Starting with Mark chapter 11, verse 9 and 10, it says this, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Matthew 21, verses 10 through 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. John chapter 12, verse 17 and 18, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And finally, Luke chapter 19, verses 37 to 38, as Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So it's pretty clear these crowds are excited because Jesus is the sure bet. He has got to be the Messiah. He's come to deliver them now. Now, why is it that we believe that's what they were thinking? Well, three reasons. Number one, the first reason is they spoke of Jesus as being that prophet that comes from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, in Deuteronomy 18.18, Moses was clear to tell the people, actually the Lord through Moses told the people that one day God would raise up a prophet like Moses and that the people of Israel, the people of God were to listen to him because the Lord would give him his words to speak. And you notice there in Matthew 21.10, when they asked who this is, they said, this is the prophet. Now, there were many prophets, as you know, all through the ages of, of Israel's history, starting with Samuel and all the way up through the, these first, second chronicles. But there was one prophet in particular that they were waiting for, and they believed Jesus was that prophet. The second reason we see here in John chapter 12, verse 18, and Luke 19.38, all these people had seen these mighty signs and mighty works that Jesus had done. Who could do those things? Right before our chapter in John 12, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. What in the world? So they see these mighty works happening, and they figure this has got to be him. So we're looking for a prophet. He does mighty works like no other prophet could. And then third and finally, this was Passover week, the week that the Jews has always celebrated since it was initiated in Exodus chapter 12, the week that the Jews celebrate to this day. And so the, 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 the kind of coming together of these three realities that they were looking for a prophet, this man did mighty works that no one else could do, and it was Passover weekend, and he was marching into, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And there is always an expectation that just as Yahweh, just as the Lord had delivered the people of God at Passover in Exodus 12, there was always a belief that the Lord would again deliver His people at Passover. And so for these three reasons, there's this absolute excitement. They do the math and they realize He's the one. And that meant things were turning around for the Jews because that was the point of Messiah. 
I mean, what was salvation if not getting freed from oppression, being delivered from the one that causes pain and injustice, the Savior to overthrow the yoke of those who stand against God? And that would be Rome. And so they say, this is the sure bet. He is the one. Now, obviously, I wasn't there at the triumphal entry, neither have you, but, but I have seen crowds worked up into a frenzy over a kind of coming era of salvation. Maybe you have too. About every four years in our country, thousands of people gather, and some of them go out of their minds recognizing that here's someone who's going to save us. And I remember this, I mean, as, as clear as yesterday, back when, uh, I think it was 2008, when President Barack Obama was a candidate for presidency, I remember hearing somebody say, if I put Obama in the White House, he'll put gas in my car the rest of my life. Now, I'm not saying whether or not you agree with Barack Obama as a president. That's not the point. The point was this almost messianic expectation that if he's there, my problems are solved. And then a few years later, I heard the same kind of thing. If Clinton gets into the White House, man, the glass ceiling is broken. Women are going to be free at that point. Then a few years later, heard the same kind of thing. If I get Trump in the White House, then my future is secure. I don't have to worry about unemployment. Here's the point of what I'm getting at. Whoever or whatever you place your hope in this life inevitably shapes the perspective you have about this life. That's just the way these things work. So if you think politics is the answer your salvation is always going to be political. You know people like that, so you follow it, you, you, you pursue it, you breathe it, you live for it. If you think money is the answer, then your salvation is always going to be financial. So you follow it, you pursue it, you save as much of it as you can. If you think well-being and youth is the answer, then your salvation is just going to be the, the next diet, the next uh, health trend, the next exercise routine or lifestyle. The, the point I'm getting at is this. Whatever you think is the answer to your problems, anything connected to that becomes your Savior or Savior's. And here in John 12 at the triumphal entry, people wanted to be delivered from Rome, free from the bondage of slavery and the oppression. They don't want to be slaves anymore. They don't want to be in bondage. They wanted to be free. And they heard Jesus teach these things. Jesus said, I've come to break your chains, to set you free from bondage, to give you freedom. So they figured this is our bet. He's going to rescue us from Rome. So we can understand this celebration and this frenzy. Basically, the level of our excitement is about our salvation is always in direct proportion to the weight of the burdens of our problems, right? So the level of our excitement regarding our salvation is in direct proportion to the weight or the burden that our problems cause. We're the same way. So it's, well, I think it's going to be tax season. I don't, I don't know if we're actually going to do taxes this year. This is a strange time, but let's just say tax season is, is here. And if your tax burden is light and, and, and taxes are kind of freed, this, you know, you get away from your taxes, no big deal. But if your tax burden is, is, is heavy and you feel it and they tell you you don't have to pay taxes this year, woo, you're feeling great. And the people of Israel felt the weight and the burden of Rome. And Jesus, he was their sure bet to cast this burden off. 
before I move on to the second perspective about Jesus, I want to just make it crystal clear that these people, their perspective about Jesus being their sure bet was exactly right. They were right. So, here's the million-dollar question then. If their perspective about Jesus was right, why then just a few days later did they cry out and demand to have Him crucified? And that's a very legitimate question. And again, the answer has a lot of relevance to us. See, the problem wasn't that they misunderstood the Savior because they got that exactly right. The problem wasn't that they misunderstood the Savior. The problem was they misunderstood what they needed saving from. Let's say that again. It wasn't that they misunderstood the Savior. They misunderstood what they needed saving from, and that wasn't the salvation they wanted, but it was the salvation that they needed. They felt the burden of Rome. They felt the weight of Rome's oppressive hand, but they did not feel the weight of their sin. They didn't feel the burden of their sin. And we'll come back, to that, come back to that in a little bit. But let's right now look at the second perspective about Jesus. So the first perspective was that Jesus was a sure bet. He, he's our payday. He's going to make everything all right. The second perspective was that he's a threat. Notice not everyone was happy to see Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Notice what those who were inclined not to believe in Jesus had to say. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. John chapter 12, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And there it is. There it is. Now, why don't these Pharisees, these religious leaders, the, these, the politically connected and powerful, uh, why aren't they celebrating when Jesus arrives? We see it right there at the end of John 12, 19, because he's a threat to them. They said, you're going to gain nothing. Look, the whole world's going after him. They weren't celebrating because Jesus wasn't a sure bet. He was a threat to them. Now, we need to give them a little slack here. We don't want to make the, um, the, the Pharisees or those who didn't believe in Jesus initially, we don't want to make them one-dimensional and shallow. After all, we do the same kinds of things, don't we? Whenever someone threatens our safety, our security, our position, our comfort, what do we do? We feel threatened just as much. So, let, let, let's not look down on these Pharisees too much. Now, you might be asking, well, how could these religious leaders not believe that Jesus was the Messiah? After all, they saw all the same miracles the people did. They heard all the same teachings that the people did. They read the same scriptures that the people did. Then how could they come to such a radically different conclusion about who Jesus is? Well, the answer is really simple. They just had a different perspective. They didn't need saving. They didn't need security. They didn't need comfort. They didn't need power. They had all those things. And Jesus showing up on the scene was a threat to all of it. And they just did what any one of us would do when our comfort, our security, our power, our control is threatened. 
we, we get defensive or, or we get offensive, right? Jesus wasn't a sure bet, not to them. Jesus was a threat to them. For these kinds of people, the presence of Jesus, the coming king, is not a promise of life. For these kinds of people who are themselves their king, captain of their own ship, masters of their own destiny, they're in control. No one tells them how to live their lives. They got all their things taken care of. They are the king. For those kinds of people, the presence of Jesus is not a promise of life. It's a sentence of death. And that's exactly the dynamic we see happening here. Now, before we kind of turn and look at a third and final perspective, let me just say this really important thing about these people, the the religious leaders, those who were not inclined to believe in Jesus either. And that's this. Their perspective was exactly right too. Jesus is a threat And this sets us up for the final perspective. If you're going to understand what what John 12 and the triumphal entry is about and what Jesus is about, you have to understand that both perspectives of Jesus are exactly correct. That Jesus is a sure bet and Jesus is a threat. You see, the problem with these, uh, uh, the problem inherent in each of these perspectives individually is that there's not much difference between them at all. They're not very different at all. Surely on on the outside, their outworkings look really different, but they're almost identical in their motives. They just come at it from different directions. You see, Jesus was either their ticket to the things they wanted, or Jesus was the obstacle to the things they wanted. In either case, Jesus was not the thing they wanted. And aren't we the same way? We can view Jesus either as, hey, he's the thing that's going to give me what I want, or he's the thing that keeps me back from what I want. And that was going on here. Friends, we always talk about in counseling, our wants, uh, the wants we have in our lives is a little uh, pulling back of the curtain into the worship of our lives. The things we want point to indicate the things we will worship. And on these views, Jesus is merely a means or an obstacle to the thing that you worship, but he is not the thing that is worshiped, and both of them are wrong. And that's why, while both their perspectives were right individually, they were also wrong individually. And we can easily fall into this trap. So if you're sitting there saying, okay, well then how do I How do I worship Jesus for who He is? How do I make Him the object of my worship and not the means to the thing I actually worship or an obstacle to the thing I actually worship? How do I get there? And this is how you get there. You realize that Jesus is both a sure bet and a threat. He is a sure bet because He is the promise of life and blessing and hope in and of Himself, and He's a threat to our self-rule, our self-centeredness, our own wants and desires, our own mini-kingdom. Friends, understanding that Jesus is both is so important. If Jesus is just a sure bet to what you want, then none of your insecurities, none of your selfishness, none of your immaturities will be challenged. In other words, you won't grow, you won't be stretched. If you think Jesus is just here to help you get what you want, to give you the salvation you want, 
but don't realize that He's here to give you the salvation you need, you will turn on Him as quickly as these people did when you don't get what you want from Him. What we really need saving from before getting saved from all the evil and wrong outside of us is to be saved from all the evil and wrong inside of us. And that's what they didn't understand. That's what these people didn't understand. So they turned on them. And that's what so often we don't understand, right? The the, the sin and the evil that we so easily see around us, we so readily excuse in ourselves, don't we? This is why you can drive on the freeway and you can cut someone off and you don't think too much about it because you didn't really mean anything about it, mean anything by it. But if somebody cuts you off on the freeway, well, they're an idiot and they don't know how to drive, right? Or while if you happen to be the person to get the last mega roll of toilet paper at Target, because after all, you have a family to look out for, right? But when someone else beats you to it, they're rude and selfish and just feeding the fear, The evil we see outside of us so readily, we excuse inside of us so easily. And that's because we don't understand the salvation that Jesus really intends to give us. The freedom from bondage and slavery that he intended all along wasn't external. That's actually pretty easy. It was internal. And that was so much harder. Jesus is a threat to all of our self-made kingdoms. He is the one true king, and he doesn't abide any usurpers to that throne. But if, on the other hand, you only see Jesus as a threat and not as a sure bet, you will never trust him. You'll never trust him enough to draw near to him, to receive from him care and blessing and comfort and goodness from him. In other words, you won't worship him because you'll always see him as against you and not as for you. Friends, if we only see what he takes and not what he gives, we'll never love him the way we should. I've often shared stories with you all about my dog, Napoleon. Napoleon has really helped me learn a lot about the way the Lord relates to me and I to him. And Um, he has this bad habit of taking his dog treats and burying them in places in the yard or sometimes even in the house. And later, we'll come by and find him digging these old, uh, crumbly, dirty, sometimes molding dog treats. And we don't want him to eat that, so we'll hold out a new one. But he is so limited in his understanding that he will not give up the crusty, dirty, moldy old dog treat and receive from us the good, fresh, new dog treat because he thinks that's what he really wants when in fact he doesn't realize what he truly wants we are offering to him. And sometimes we are that way as well. Friends, Easter, this season, is all about what he gives, isn't it? That's really important. Because if we only see him as somebody who takes from us and we don't see all that he gives to us, we're never going to trust him. We're not going to love him. We're not going to see him as our sure bet. But this week, it's all about what he gives to us. He gives us his life. He gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we could have the righteousness of God. He gives you the inheritance promised to him by his Father. Friends, if you're a note taker, write down John chapter 17, 
This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus right before he goes to be uh, 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 go on trial before Pilate and goes to be crucified. He prays, and one of the themes woven to that prayer is his glory, the Lord, the Father's glory, his glory before creation, the glory he wants us to be a part of, to see, to receive, to share in. Ephesians chapter 1, numerous times, four times, Paul talks about the inheritance that are, is ours because of what Christ has done. Let me read to you Hebrews 9.15. The writer says this, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, speaking of Jesus, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Friends, in order to get the right perspective about Jesus, we must see Him as both. He is our sure bet, and He is our threat. He is the sure bet to our true life, our eternal satisfaction and reward. He is the one who is those things, and He is the threat to our sinful selves and the only one who can displace our love for ourself, for a love for God, and a love for others. Let me just sit, wrap up by saying this. As Jesus came into Jerusalem so long ago, Jesus comes into every one of our lives. And whether or not you might be inclined uh, for Him or inclined against Him, it doesn't automatically mean that you get Him or reject Him. You see, you, you can be inclined towards Him, but that doesn't mean you get Him. You may not be inclined towards Him. That doesn't mean you reject Him because you might be rejecting things you think you know about Him until we have both of these perspectives of who Christ is, that He is our sure bet, and the reason He is our sure bet is because He is a threat to our own self-undoing because of sin and our rebellion. When we understand He is both of those things, we begin to understand who He is, and what His work was really all about. Now, this is the right perspective about Jesus. Next week at Easter, we'll talk about how this right perspective about Jesus, rightly understanding who He is and His work, helps fuel our lives with the meaning and power necessary because of the resurrection. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for the triumphal entry. Lord, help us to see the work of Christ for what it truly is, that He's not our eternal vending machine to give us all the desires and wants of our hearts. And at the same time, He does supply us. He, he reorients the desires of our hearts once our sinful hearts have been changed, been brought under His Lordship. Father, help us to not just see Him as well as just a threat, or we'll never come to Him, we'll never love Him, we'll never worship Him. Father, help us to have a right perspective of who Jesus Christ is so that we might love Him, so we not use Him as a means to an end or the obstacle to our end, but the end itself. And we'll thank you for it. In His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.com dot org.